let's crack open a beer and share some thoughts. Welcome to Opinions and we're back in your ears once again. The beer is in the glass and we're ready to go. But we're not alone this week, are we, Martin? No, and uh, we have a guest from Northern Ireland, Stephen O'Kane from Licarda Brewing. Welcome to the show. Thanks very much, gentlemen. Very nice to have you along, Stephen. Yeah, it's great to be here. Um, you know, it's my first time on a podcast. I'm a little bit nervous about it, but I'm looking forward to it. I'm, I'm sure you'll be fine once the beers start flowing. Exactly. And uh, <laughs> speaking of which... Um, you and I, Steve, are drinking some beers that were kindly sent to us by Fauna Brewing, and we can chat a bit more about uh, the ethos behind that company. And we have a table beer. So we are starting fairly low, Steve. It's very, very unlike us, isn't it? 2.8%, 330ml yes. can. What's what going, going on? on? What is going on? <laughs> and... Um, Stephen, our guest, what are you uh, drinking as your first beer of the evening? So I'm drinking a beer from Lakata Brewery, which is based in Port Rush on the north coast of Northern Ireland. It's called West Bay. It's a Citra Pale Ale and it's a mighty 4.6%. So I'm going to be a good bit ahead of you guys by the end of this first beer. And it's a bigger can. So I might have to drink quickly and we'll see how you guys do slowing up a little bit. <laughs> Listen to the show, evidently. <laughs> Clearly. Uh, without further ado, shall we get into our beers? Yeah, let's. Cheers. Indeed. Cheers. Cheers, gentlemen. Oh, you know what? That's a fairly decent table beer. It's got a lovely nose on it. There's a nice bit of body to that as, as well. It's not, it's not like thin like some table beers can be. Um, there's a big heft of sort of citrus notes, a bit lemony and, and, and a nice crisp bit of finish. Um, for for 2.8%, probably the only thing you could, could could want more would be a 440 mil can on this occasion, maybe. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's exactly what I was going to say. I mean, you know, those citrus or sort of orange and lemon notes coming through nicely. I think it was the aroma which struck me straight away, but once it was in the glass and, and you were pulling it up to drink it. Really powerful aroma, actually. It's, it's a big, bold aroma, isn't it? There's, 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 it's really, like you say, powerful. Yeah. There's really strong notes come off of it. Yeah, there was no holding back on that. Uh, while I look up a few notes on this beer, Stephen, tell us a little bit about yours. Well, I would say what, what you've said about your beers sort of comes through in my beer as well. This is, so this is, um, the Caterbury is, um, it's a brewery that I'm a member of. It's a co-op brewery. And I'm on the board of directors, a volunteer director there. So I do know this beer fairly well. I've drank it quite a few times in the past. Um, but it definitely, it sounds quite similar to you have in your glass because it is, it's dry hopped with citra. It's definitely got quite a lot of, uh, you know, zesty, uh, lemony notes to it whenever you're drinking it. Um, it's definitely obviously a bit stronger than your beer, but um, it, it sounds very similar. Yeah, I mean, that's yours is definitely in that sessionable, almost IPA mm -hmm. session ale territory, isn't it? Yeah, just about in there. So it is. So a little bit of stone fruits off it as well. Um, it's always nice to get a little bit of that in there too. But uh, but it's it's a, definitely a refreshing beer. Nice for a, a nice summer evening. So our beer is the Pango Table Beer. And as I said, it's from Fauna Brewing. And uh, what they are inspired to do is uh, help endangered wildlife. And so that is their mission to brew with the purpose. Their purpose is the wildlife. And... Uh, the Pango is the part of the working African pangolin group. And apparently 
pangolins are the most trafficked animals in the world, which was something I was unaware of. In fact, I might struggle to identify a pangolin. I would agree. If I'm being absolutely honest. <laughs> People may not me, be surprised about th- that. There is a little image on the side, side of the can that looks like it's some sort of anteater, aardvark-type creature. Uh, I, yeah, I was going to go down the aardvark, and maybe it's another term for it, or it's the same family, etc. Um, but yeah, so... So far, they've donated £3,000 to Chosen Partners, and the next two beers are also sort of specialising in um, an endangered species they're looking after, and we'll mention those when we get to them. But initial thoughts are lovely that they've got the the, the purpose, but beer number one is tasting great. It's, it's tasting really good. Um, it's, it's lacking any information on the can in terms of what hops might have gone into this. Um, so it tells us it's a table beer. It tells us we should be expecting citrus and pine. And then it's got um, almost like a flavour wheel, like you get on, on, on some brewery cans as well. But then it, it, it's not really giving us any more than that in terms of what hops they've, they've, they've used. Yeah, I mean, sometimes, I mean, I guess as a bit of a beer geek, we all probably always love to know those things. And especially you and I, Steve, tell us about the hops uh, and how many are in there. But, um, you know, it's, it is everything else it has said on the tin it is doing. Yeah, yeah. I'd, I'd, put, I'd put a sizable amount of money on there being Citra in, in, in that because the characteristics that I'm picking up feel like oh. very Citra dominant. Yeah, spot on. And, you know, again, if that is the case, it's either, I doubt it's single hopped, but it's definitely dominant part of it. They've used it very well. Yes, very well. Um, maybe too well. And um, I am very <laughs> conscious of 2.8% 330 mils. It's not going to last long at all. So we should probably get uh, get talking to Stephen quickly to, to, tonight. So Stephen, tell us um, a little bit about your your beer journey. How do you how have you found yourself ending up being on the Opinions podcast to, to tonight? How did all that start? Yeah, well, I've always been a beer drinker, you know, I've always enjoyed my beer. And uh, many years ago, I sort of accidentally moved to Munich whenever I was at university and ended up spending about five years in Munich, which is a great, it's a great beer city, a great place to be in. And and while the diversity of the beer selection there maybe isn't quite what it is in England, you do still encounter a lot of beer styles that you wouldn't otherwise find, you know, in the UK or Ireland. So, you know, you've, you've your Munich Dunkels and you've your, well, Vice beers are obviously, you know, they've been quite popular over here for some time now, but, you know, still something relatively new to me 20 years ago. Um, so I spent a few years there, but I wasn't really, you know, into the, the real sort of the geek side of being, be- you know, being into beer. I just enjoyed my beers. You know, it's, it's great sitting out in the, the beer gardens of Munich, having a, a few mass of, of the local Hellas. Um, um, but then I did, you know, I moved to England and uh, maybe that was in the late 2000s and spent a few years there and sort of encountered cask beer for the first time properly. Because growing up in Northern Ireland, you don't really find any beers outside of some of the big brands like Guinness, Harp, Carlsberg, Heineken and things like that. Most pubs you go to have a, have a similar selection. You might find the occasional pub that is something different. And that's sort of what we'll get into later, I guess, is uh, sort of why I'm here. Um, 
And, uh, you know, being in England, you know, I, I found a lot more beers that I'd never tried, a lot, lot of beer styles I'd never tried before. It was great. But again, I still didn't get into the, the real geeky aspect of wanting to learn more about all of these different breweries and, and trying to, you know, seek out special beers. Uh, and then I, I moved to New York for a few years uh, in the 2010s, at the start of the 2010s, approximately. And there, I, the company I joined there, a couple of people in the company homebrewed. And I got addicted to homebrewing at that point, you know, and it was really good working with people who did homebrew because, uh, you know, they were able to give me lots of advice on what to do. But on top of that, in the office that I was working in, they had beer taps. So they had three beer taps in the office and we, we just ordered kegs of the best beer from around New York and further afield, whichever we could get our hands on to sorry, serve in the office. Sorry. I need to get back <laughs> step there. Um, I've been listening diligently and a bit envious mm-hmm. about the uh, the travel aspects and ending up in Munich. However, you topped that all by saying we had some beer taps in the office. Yeah, I know. I couldn't believe it whenever I joined the company. Like they told, they mentioned it in the interview, but I wasn't sure if that's what they said exactly. And as an Irish man, you don't want to live up to the stereotype of going, um, "Yeah, can you show me the beer taps, please?" Because when I was leaving the building, actually. Uh, I walked out off the elevator. They were in the top floor, down the elevator. And I was walking out the building. I could see there was a door into an Irish pub. And you walk out the front of the building and there's an Irish pub. And I thought, oh, they just mean there's a pub in the building. And after work, we all get together and have a few drinks there. But then it took me a couple of months to get my visa stuff sorted out. And I didn't know until I went in on the first day in the office. And they gave me the tour of the office. And there you go, one of the meeting rooms, there was a, you know, three taps and a, and a bench at the side of the room, which was hooked up to a fridge on the other side of the wall in the office kitchen. And in that fridge, they had, uh, they had three kegs in there. And I, I was just couldn't believe it. <laughs> See, that's, when, I, when I first started working in the company I'm at now, and I went over to Amsterdam, one of the big event spaces, considering how many people we employed, they did have a tap, but I was very envious of it. It was hooked up purely to Amstel. Um, mm. So I was less envious um, yeah. that, at that point. But it's still, I have to admit, I still thought it was quite cool. Um, yeah, absolutely. And, but I don't think anyone was allowed to do any different ordering um, in Amsterdam. Whereas it sounds like you uh, and your colleagues, especially probably presumably the other home brewers, were able to almost create your wish list. Absolutely. I mean, some of the beers we get in were amazing beers, you know, from some of the best breweries across America. Other half had just opened in New York not long after I arrived. And, and soon we were getting kegs of other half in there, you know, you know, Firestone Walker, you know, obviously Sierra Nevada, as you do, you know, we had that every so often get their pale ale in and some of their other ones. And yeah, it was honestly, I locked out so much there whenever I landed in that office. It was unbelievable. But that's where that's whenever I began to really get into my beer properly and start to understand it a lot more. Whenever you start homebrewing, it does increase your knowledge of the processes and, and the ingredients that go into beer. Um, and yeah, it's just so from there, that's where things really kicked off. And a couple of years later, I ended up doing the certified Cicerone course. Um, I started going to some homebrew competitions, sort of learning about how the judging system worked. And then eventually started, um, you know, preparing myself for the, the BJCP exams which i which i passed just before covid lockdown kicked in so i've i've never gone to a competition to judge any yet hopefully i will someday um so yeah um and that's and then what happened was in 2018 i moved or 2017 sorry i moved back home to northern ireland and that's where you know 
once you're in the beer scene, no matter where you go, you want to learn more about it and get involved. And so whenever I moved home to Northern Ireland, you know, I found out there was this brewery in the North Coast, not far from where I ended up moving to called Licata. Um, you know, I eventually became a, a co-owner uh, in the brewery. You know, anybody can go and invest £100 plus to become a co-owner in the brewery. Uh, and then, you know, a year or two later, I got myself elected onto the board. Um, and so I've been on the board now for about 18 months. And on top of that, you know, I joined Camera whenever I moved here because, you know, there isn't very much beer advocacy in Northern Ireland. There's BR, which is an all-Ireland group, which I joined as well. But I think they still focus, you know, they focus mainly in the south of Ireland because, you know, that's, um, you know, there's a bigger catchment area there. There's more people in the, in the organization that are there. Camera sort of does cover the Northern Ireland aspect of a little bit. And they're a little bit different to Camera in the UK. They're still obviously under the same organization umbrella, but we're just more interested in just seeing some variety of beer get into pubs because that's one of the big problems we have in Northern Ireland. Even, even on keg, you get a, a very limited selection of beers. And cask is difficult to get, and especially post-COVID times now. There's, there's, a, there's only a few pubs that might have it at the minute, and hopefully some of the pubs that used to have it will get it back. Um, but pre-COVID, you know, the number of pubs that were serving cask was maybe 10 or 15 pubs in Northern Ireland. So, you know, why they would like to see more of that, and that's one of their primary focuses, like anywhere in the UK, they, they care about cask. They also just care about getting some local Northern Irish beers into pubs here, trying to get a greater variety on the, you know, on the um, on the bar top, you know, so. Steve's face when you said kegs of Sierra Nevada, pale ale, Stephen. <laughs> Was a picture. <laughs> Just put, put, it, put it this way: you know, uh, when you go for a job interview and you get the opportunity to ask questions at the end, every job interview I'm going to now is: do you have fresh, fresh Sierra Nevada available on, on taps in the office? Because if you don't, frankly, I'm not interested. That sounds like uh, one hell of a journey that, that that you've been on in terms of places where you've experienced beer and how you've grown as a beer drinker throughout that and I, I think you started to touch on it there coming coming back to Ireland from the states must have been quite the awakening for you in terms of of, of beer having had access to as you said some of the best beers in the world and then coming to uh, a, a landscape in, in in Northern Ireland that maybe didn't have quite the same selection that you would become accustomed to yeah it was definitely yeah I knew what I was getting into because you know I was going home every year anyway to Ireland to visit my family and friends and things so you know I knew it was changing slowly it was getting better and it's better than it was 20 years ago but it's still a really tough uh, landscape for any local brewery even just for someone who's who's maybe passionate about beer and wants to open a pub for them to do that in northern ireland is, is prohibitive it's really it's really difficult for somebody to do something in that area and so well i didn't know what i was getting into i knew there was there's green shoots out there and you know there's there's good people involved in beer here uh, they're making some great beers, but you know they're they're they are up against it a little bit, uh, not a little bit, a lot with the, with the uh, with the legislation and the rules around it here. So I went to Northern Ireland a couple of years ago, so mm-hmm. closer to Newry. Uh, yeah, yeah, I, I, I remember the uh, the podcast, and I I can't remember back then. I was thinking, should I contact them about this about this situation then? And I didn't do it then, and probably should have done. But anyway, yeah, fire away. But um, you know. And the place near Newry called Hilltown is, is, you know, fairly close to the southern Irish border, all things considered. 
But the only place I saw anything that could be considered local, let alone forgetting about anything to do with the word craft, was um, the off licenses. So none of the none of the pubs, bars, and anything close to being a hotel bar didn't have anything. The only one that had it was uh, they'd hosted a wedding a few weeks before and they had leftover stock. The, you know, the guy was honest with me about it. Um, so even, I mean, as a beer consumer, I was only there for five days. So I went with it. I had what was available. It was about catching up with the, with family and stuff. And and a lot of the time I was driving around between places. But it, it's, it's, a, it's, I mean, I know we're getting to it more. It's a tough, tough landscape. And if you have got a real love and passion for beer, whether that be, on either side of the counter or producing it, it it it, it, it seemed hard to me just for the five days I was there. Yeah, no, it definitely is. And you, you have to know where to go. You have to know the right spots. And where I'm based up on the North Coast, there's a, you know, there's a couple of places not too far from me that I can get to where there's, a, you know, a few decent beers available. Um, but, you know, you really need to be in and around Belfast to get the best selections. But then again, you still have to know where to go in Belfast. If you just, if you decided to go into Belfast and just hit up the five closest bars to wherever you landed in Belfast, there's a fairly good chance you're not going to find anything out of the, you know, out of the standard beers that, um, that, that exist from the macro producers, you know. Well, I might be, I might, obviously, all things being considered, be trying to get out there again for a family celebration. Um, so I might ask you for the full list. Absolutely. To be honest. We have we have a map. We have a map we can share with you. <laughs> Excellent. Love a map. Love a map. Yeah. Um, so yeah, Me no, too. I mean, I, 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 that would obviously be be handy from a personal point of view. But does that kind of thing get out there? Do you know if someone lands in Northern Ireland, what resource have they got? So let's take Untapped out of it because that's the whole verified venues thing. That might not necessarily tell you about decent beer anyway. But mm. where would you look? to try and find decent beer yeah well you know there's the good beer guide from camera i guess but even in there the number of pages in northern ireland is pretty limited there's probably only two or three pages based or maybe up to maximum four pages you know and you know i'm part of camera and we do discuss that list every year and the list is it's maybe 15 pubs across you know, you have 2 million people living in Northern Ireland and if they can only find 15 pubs to put in the good beer guide, that's not, it's not a good return rate, is it, you know? No, well, there was in the small place I was staying in Hilltown, which isn't a small, a big place at all, it had six pubs. Mm-hmm. But, and there was nothing wrong with them, but I don't think they'd make a camera beer guide. No, no, I don't think so either. So yeah, so as I said, we have her, we have her map that, you know, I put together and uh, shared it with the camera guys um and oh yeah so the one that i put it together for based on something called the north coast bottle share which was completely inspired by listening to your podcast whenever i moved back here um i said i ended up setting up the, a bottle share based on the you know the principles that you guys had uh you know talked about in yours i forgot to mention that completely and that was something i was hosting you know every month uh up until you know just covid hit and we haven't done any online ones but but i really enjoyed that it was a good way to meet uh local people who are interested in beer because you know while you know people in northern ireland still like their beer and there's enough people out there who still like good beer as well um that people are that those people exist but i just think pubs find it really hard to to tap into to that market but um but but based on the, the bottle share concept, we were able to get, you know, quite a few different people together to enjoy different beers. There's a local pub that was pretty sympathetic to the idea of, you know, yeah, let's bring in different types of beers that you can't get anywhere else and share them. And, 
to I'm going to do my, hopefully my first one uh, in over 18 months next uh, next week is the plan hopefully so we'll get uh, we'll get back on the bottle share bandwagon you mentioned that it's quite prohibitive uh, in, in in Northern Ireland looking to set up uh, a, a bar or a brewery and, and you also mentioned because of the legislation that's in, involved in that now I certainly didn't have an idea of, of that until you sent us some notes across for the show so I'm, I'm not sure many of our listeners will either so did you want to just talk us around some of the issues that you face in in, in Northern Ireland in terms of getting the beer from brewery to consumer yeah, absolutely. Um, well, like the headline figure that, that, I, that I might throw out to grab people's attention is that to set up, if I wanted to set up a bar here in Northern Ireland, it's going to cost me north of £100,000 just to get the license. That's before I've set up a premise, before I've got all the kit installed and you set up your bar, that's going to be expensive as well. But just to get the license to sell alcohol, it's going to cost you north of £100,000. Um, there's actually a company in Belfast, you know, a group of solicitors, they specialize in this because it is such a lucrative thing and, and people who are selling licenses want to make sure they get a good price for it and people who are buying license, licenses need the expertise because it's actually a complicated process. So they were telling me it would cost me about 90 grand to get the license and then for an uncomplicated transfer about 25,000 pounds in legal fees. And if it got complicated, it could be up to £50,000 in legal fees. And that's because whenever you buy a license, if you ended up buying a pub and the license, it's probably the legal fees are much lower. But if you want to move that license somewhere else, say you're, you know, there's no licenses available in the town you want to open in, you have to buy a license from somewhere else. Whenever you try to move that license to the new jurisdiction, local publicans in that town can object to it and you would imagine they will because that's competition and they will not want necessarily to see more competition in their area. So, and that's just the, the tip of the iceberg. So potentially 150,000 pounds for the license, nothing else, just the license. Now, presumably therefore that's because you've got a finite number of licenses available Correct. across the province. Correct, correct. There's about 1,800 licenses in Northern Ireland for on and off sales. Um, so that's not, I don't, you know, I don't know how many licenses exist in England for on and off sales between, you know, pubs and tap rooms and, and off licenses and things like that. But it's 1,800, I think, approximately in Northern Ireland. I don't know if anybody knows the exact figure, but it's around that number. And, but the, the reason for this is it's quite a historical reason. You have to go back to about 1905, I think. Okay, uh, just before you do time. the history lesson, no, because I just yes. want to jump in with, with a question about <laughs> just what you've said there on and off licenses. So does that mean that supermarkets have to have one of these very finite number of licenses as well? Absolutely. And they do need one of those. And one of the reasons why you see a decline in the number of rural pubs in so many villages now without a pub is because a supermarket nearby has gone, well, we, you know, we need, if we're, nearly every supermarket has an off license in it and we need to sell, you know, we need a license. And so a little pub shuts down, supermarket buys a license and that pub's never, ever going to open again because it's just not financially viable for somebody else to try and get a license and reopen a, a village tavern and, you know, create that sort of nice 
nice atmosphere you're going to have the community atmosphere in a local pub that license is probably gone forever because supermarkets aren't going to give up on that well, yeah they're not they're not going to let go of it are they and no. they're, they're certainly going to look look to maximize on the profits if they ever do sell, sell it on so have you got a, a rough idea of maybe what the, the the percentages of licenses that are owned by supermarkets you know, I don't, unfortunately, but what I will say is, you know, in the last 30 or 40 years, the number of uh, supermarkets that do have a license has shot up dramatically. You know, I remember whenever I was a kid in the 80s and 90s, you went to a supermarket, there was no off license in a supermarket, hardly, you know, they rarely had one. And then at some point they realized, you know, we, we need to have one of these, we, you know, this is a great way to make money selling alcohol to consumers who knew. And so, you know, slowly but surely, yeah, the pubs have just sort of, you know, they slowly disappear from rural areas, even in towns as well. There's, there's parts of Belfast you could go to, you could wander around many, many streets and not see a pub, you know? They've just, you know, the, the pubs just aren't there. And assume, assuming that those licences are for the particular venue as well, so a, a supermarket chain couldn't buy a licence to cover all of its venues, and neither could a, a pub chain buy one single license to cover a multitude of venues. The license is for a single property. Exactly that. The license is for a single property. So there's one there's one chain of off licenses in Northern Ireland. I think they've got about 88 branches and they have to have an individual license for each branch. Goodness and so me. probably their bank balance, probably their the value of their company is all is mostly on paper. I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm just sort of speculating, but the value well, you know, if they were trying, you know, trying to buy something or or expand, they probably use that as a big look. We have all of these paper licenses that are worth, you know, if we, you know, what did I say, eighty-eight licenses, about ninety grand each. That's almost ten million pounds. That's the value probably in the company is is there. That's eighty-eight for them. All the supermarkets. It must include hotels as well with their bars. Well, I think I, I'm not. I I can't say for sure it was hotels. I think. You know, whenever it's restaurants, restaurants, restaurants can serve alcohol, but you have to be having food with them. There's probably some private members, clubs and stuff where you can get a different type of license. Uh, I'm not 100% sure about hotels, but I think if anybody who's operating like a proper bar where you're able to open until, you know, like midnight and, you know, you have a full range of drinks and all that. I think, you know, I, I would imagine most hotels have a full license. If you don't have a full license, you know, you have to be serving food with it or something like that. I'm, I'm not 100% certain of that. Sounds bonkers. This this is. is this is just blowing my mind. So I'm I'm interested to see how far back it goes. I know I know I jumped <laughs> in as you was about to go into the history of this, Stephen. So um, please please continue telling us about how far back this goes. So this goes back to 1905, I think, approximately. Uh, there was a, you know, b- back in the early 1900s. Uh, at that point, this is pre-partition in Ireland. So Ireland is the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland. And at that point, uh, somebody in government, some clever politician, decided that there were too many alcohol licenses in Ireland. There's too many pubs, and possibly the Irish people are drinking too much. Just maybe, I'm not sure. But anyway, and they decided they wanted to, to limit that. So at that point, they said, all the licenses that exist right now, that's it. We're not granting any more new licenses. And uh, we're going to implement something called a surrender principle, which basically means that if somebody does give up a license, that license disappears. So the number of licenses from that point, it was probably relatively high at that point. I think there's lots of little pubs in every corner of the country and every little hamlet probably had some, some, somebody running a pub out of their front room and things like that. And so 
probably for the first 50 or 60 years, it didn't matter that much. The number of licenses was going probably going down slowly as some licenses were given up. Um, at this point, you also have partition in Ireland and Northern Ireland becomes, you know, it's its own sort of, well, we have the separation of the South and the North and uh, the laws in Northern Ireland are the same. I'm not fully aware of exactly of how the laws work down South, but they've definitely changed over the years. I haven't had time to dig into all of the historical consequences of of um, licensing in the south of Ireland. It's still complicated and expensive down there, but it's maybe not as archaic as it is up north. Um, so the number of licenses obviously gets to a certain point where people realize these things have value. You know, something that intrinsically shouldn't have value ends up having value because it's a finite resource, you know, and nobody's changed the law since 1905. And so, Eventually, the number of licenses in Northern Ireland reaches a certain amount where people go, right, well, if I want to get a license, I now have to buy one. And slowly but surely, the population slowly increases. You know, um, you, know you, you need the occasional more, you know, need more pubs to, to serve that population. Supermarkets come onto the scene. They want to get the licenses. And so, you know, I don't know exactly when licenses really started to, you know, become valuable, but certainly in the last 20 years, and it's probably longer. I'd imagine if you go back to about the 80s or 90s is whenever, you know, the price of license really becomes, you know, something that's, you know, a significant investment in you trying to start a pub. And that just kills the ability of somebody who, who wants to get into the trade to actually get into the trade. And so, yeah, you end up in a situation we're in today, uh, licenses selling for almost £100,000 before extra add-on costs. Yeah, my mum and dad tried explaining a lot of the time when I was younger, the reason for um, Ireland being partitioned, but I reckon that licensing law was probably the problem, trying to limit the amount of pubs <laughs> the Irish could have. I mean, for goodness sake, I mean, like you Very say, maybe for, a period of, maybe for a period of time, the impact wasn't so felt. And having yeah. some sort of value in a license, but if it's now got to a point where people have such a vested interest in that status quo being maintained, you are stifling innovation. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, there's any number of people, I think, in Northern Ireland who might want to start. Like, if you're a craft beer enthusiast, you might want to just go, hey, I'd love to just start a micro bar. Like, micro pubs in England are great little venues to pop into. A high street can be rejuvenated by a few places that got popping up, but it's just impossible to do in Northern Ireland. Whenever somebody does have a license, the only thing that's really viable for them to do is to try and maximize the license itself. So a lot of places will try and expand the boundaries of the premise that they have to make the most of the fact that they do have a license. So you end up with bars, you know, just getting bigger rather than having a variety of little small bars all over the place. Um, but the main, the main problem that you have with the licensing system as it is at the minute is that people who do commit to getting into the trade, right? So somebody does decide they want to buy a pub, they want to buy a license. They, you know, they really, they've been working in a pub for years and they think they can do it themselves. They can run it. If they do decide to go down that route, you know, you're, you're so much in the red by the time you open doors that the first thing that will probably happen is you'll go and talk to Guinness, the Agio, or you'll go and talk to CNC, which, uh, you know, uh, they deliver tenants and Heverty and, you know, a few other beers. You go and talk to one of these two big distributors and there really are only two big distributors in Ireland. And they'll ask you, you know, Hey, well, we'll, we'll give you a contract for X amount of, we'll pay you 40 grand for five years. You stock our beers, you know, and that's going to be really enticing at that point. You're going to be like, 
well, that'll help that big, you know, hole in the bank balance. And so you end up signing up to become, you know, you know, you end up serving only their beers mostly. Um, and it just creates uh, a market where the consumer is left with, like, very, with very few choices because every pub you go into mostly serves the same beers. And you know that, you know, I, I think it's still a law across the whole of the UK that every pub has to have at least one guest tap. Have you, um, if you guys have heard of that law? I can't remember if you can remember some of the beer laws Yeah, or I something. think that was part of the beer orders. Um, yeah, beer orders, and yeah. The, the, the term guest, I think, can be loosely interpreted sometimes um, mm-hmm. with guest ales rebadged. Um, but the concept is there and a yeah. lot of tied houses do offer you a guest option that's usually under the cask branding, yeah. you know, a cask beer. Um, so you haven't even really got, so it's prohibitive even to get a guest. On well, a so the thing, is, the thing what happens is if you're C, if your beer is provided by C and C, so you get tenants and Heverly and I don't know, they have a few other beer brands out there and your guest tap would probably be Guinness because you're not going to open a pub in Ireland without Guinness, you know? And then on the flip side, if you're if you happen to be contracted with Guinness and you're going to have your harp and your uh, Guinness, obviously, and maybe you'll have Smithix and you know, a couple of other uh, lines of draft, you'll probably get tenants in from the other guys because they'll be like, yeah, well, that's your guest tap then, you know. And so it's they've all got, the, it, got it know. all sewn up, haven't they? Really, they really, <laughs> yeah. they really have. Yeah, yeah, it's, and that's why even whenever you go into a pub, you would like to maybe see one different type of beer on. You probably won't see. A different type of beer on apart from the standards you know i could probably write you out a list of 10 beers and most pubs you go into in northern ireland you'll get a selection of those 10 beers and not much else unfortunately i just i, I find it find it mind-blowing that this 115 year old law just has not evolved with the times and and and, and the population and it's it's very much seems to be stifling the industry yeah I'm, I'm assuming that that also therefore extends to breweries wishing to open a, a tap room and, and and sell their beer fresh to the <clears> consumer <throat> because the brewery will need a license to do that and there are there are no licenses available so how can they open uh, a, a, a tap room yeah so that's so that's what this new legislation so there's some legislation going through the Northern Ireland Assembly at the minute. It's our version of our devolved government here. Uh, and, you know, they're looking to change some of the laws and they're, they're doing some decent things, but they're going nowhere near far enough to try and fix this problem. Uh, but one of the things that they are trying to create is a producer's license. And so with a producer's license, then um, breweries in Northern Ireland would have the potential to open a tap room on their premises, but... Uh, the way the life, uh, the way the um, legislation has been written at the minute, it actually makes it financially impossible for them to do that uh, unless there's a few updates before the legislation goes through, which I don't think that there is going to be any more updates to it. I think it's sort of, um, you know, getting towards the last few stages of the, um, the process to turn that uh, legislation into law, but it will allow them to sell beer from the premise. So they'll be able to, like we we at the Canterbury we had tour pre COVID we were doing tours, and people couldn't drink our beer. And you know on the tour you couldn't give them any beer to drink, maybe a thimbleful of a tiny bit of beer, or else you're breaking the law. And whenever they're leaving the tour, we couldn't sell them any beer either. It's you know it was completely impossible for us to 
to make something like that happen. And so we ended up, you know, it, it's, it doesn't really make that much sense to do the tours whenever there's, you know, very little that you can do to sell your own product. And also it frustrates the consumer a bit. If you're a guy from America who's on holiday over here, you go, oh, there's a great little local brewery down there. Let me go and visit it. I'd love to try their beer straight from the source. Nope, we have to point them in the direction of the nearest off license so they can go and buy some to take on their journey with them, you know? Um, but so, yeah. I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm amazed that there are any breweries in Northern Ireland. <laughs> I, 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 I really am because it, it just seems as though everything is 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 stacked against you not going down that route there there yeah. seems to be no investment or, or or support in local business and local enterprise yeah it's it's just not good for the northern irish economy because as i mentioned before we drink quite a lot of beer in northern ireland you know we we enjoy our beer we enjoy our, our spirits and our you know wine as well but you know 98 plus percent of the beer consumed in Northern Ireland either comes from, you know, the UK, the rest of the UK, or it comes from down south in the Republic of Ireland or further abroad. It's very hard to get any local beer, uh, to, to allow it to get, gain any sort of traction, to grow properly, to try and, you know, make things happen. And so all of those jobs that are involved in making that beer, none of those jobs happen in Northern Ireland. You know, the Northern Irish brewery, um, you know, the, the amount of people working and brewing in Northern Ireland it's probably not more than a hundred people. And I've done like some back of the envelope calculations of the amount of beer consumed uh, versus the amount of beer produced in uh, the rest of the UK and the number of employees that SIBA, uh, SIBA has um, uh, reckons are employed in brewing in the UK. And there should be four or 500 people in Northern Ireland employed in brewing, judging by the amount of beer they drink. So we're, you know, we're sending jobs overseas and uh, elsewhere uh, whenever they could be uh, people employed here producing local, you know, local beer for local people. And that just doesn't happen. And some politicians see that there's some people, you know, trying to work hard to change these things. But um, there's still, you know, if you imagine all of those people who do hold licenses, they don't want to see too much change to it because you're sitting on something that's worth 90 grand that intrinsically has no value. And especially if you've bought in the last 10 or 15 years, you know, you know, it's going to be hard for you to want any change to that legislation. So there is, there is a um, a lobbying group called uh, Hospitality Ulster, and they, you know, they're doing their best to hamper the legislation as much as possible and to try and stop the civil servants from adding in certain things that might try and change the situation, try and make it easier for the brewers, for pub, well, for potential new publicans and anybody else and the consumer essentially you know well we'll come back to talk to you uh, a little bit later on about some of the breweries that are making it and are making a go of it i have found that absolutely fascinating i i never i never understood that that that, that was the, the the situation obviously both martin and i have got a fairly decent idea of what the, the situation is like in the, the the south of ireland due to having good friends in in, in wayne and janice down there who obviously talk uh, about the situation quite a lot but this i just find this license thing amazing that only there's only a fine number finite number of these pieces of paper and they're just, it's it's just, it's almost feels like they're just traded like in back alleys in, in, in terms of these deals that are being done. I just, it's mind blowing. Well, it's a commodity. Yeah. I mean, essentially, mm-hmm. it's a commodity to be traded. 
And, you know, we've, yeah. we've heard from Wayne many times, um, both on his socials and when we listen to podcasts about, that, you know, the south of Ireland definitely has its own um, restrictions and constraints. But in comparison to what you've described, Stephen, um, it's, it's mind-blowing what's going on or not going on, more to the point, in Northern Ireland versus the south and therefore versus the rest of the United Kingdom as well. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's Absolutely. a real. I mean, we will we'll come back to it because I know that there are there are some breweries as well as your own. There are some other ones who people will be familiar with. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean that's one one hell of a setting up of the picture, though. Thank you for that. <laughs> you're welcome. You're <laughs> welcome. Um, I know, like I do know down south, they did have some. They created some new legislation a few years ago, but it's turned out also to not work that well for the breweries you know you know you guys know Kinnegar Brewing over in Donegal yeah. I think you've had some of their beers in the show before and I was over there maybe in 2018 and this is a year or two after the new legislation had gone through and I went into the brewery they have a little shop in there where they, they sell t-shirts and things like that but they don't sell any beer again and I said oh do you have any plans to open a tap room with the new legislation they're like no not really because the legislation was badly written or it, it it doesn't make financial sense for us to do it yet you know and they're and they're you know a great brewery in a big town and if they had a tap room i'm sure it would be very popular but they've looked at the numbers evidently and maybe it's changed since then i haven't popped well not with covid it probably hasn't but i haven't popped in there in a while but but even a brewery the size of kindergarten you know they're fairly big as far as one of the uh, independent craft beer breweries in uh, ireland goes even if they can't see the point in doing it then that legislation seems to have failed as well I'm glad I've got another beer to go to after all of that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, pre- predictably, why why you've been telling us about that, Stephen, and we've been having our minds blown. The um the, the, the fauna pango table beer uh, evaporated rapidly uh, as 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 we guessed it would at only two point eight percent. But um, I thoroughly enjoyed that, Martin. I that is normally I'm not that taken by table beers. I must say, even and and I will say this even the colonel's table beer doesn't really do a lot for me um but i really enjoyed that that was a a really tasty full-bodied crisp little easy drinker it was very accomplished and i think if you take out the table beer and don't tell someone the abv not sure you would pick it up straight away i don't think you would i don't think you'd pick up that was only 2.8 percent so ringing no, endorsement, well, yeah, really well done. That, that, isn't that the isn't that the goal of anyone making a low ABV beer, is to convince everyone you're not drinking one? Yeah, abs- mm-hmm. absolutely. How's uh, how's your beer coming along, Stephen? Are you still going with it? No, I mean, I, we did we did make you do quite a lot of talking there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I found a few gaps in there to, to polish some of it off, and it, it is a, to be honest, I do find this beer really drinkable, and so I got it. I got it done maybe a little bit slower than you guys, but finished it off just a minute ago there. I knew it was coming up. You know, I sort of guessed you guys were ready for another one. So you've you've listened to the show and you're watching a drink as well. So you know when our Absolutely. glasses are empty. <laughs> Let's move on to the second beer this week then. For you and I, Martin, we are on the next fauna beer, which is their cheetah lager at 4.5%. Stephen, what are you enjoying this time? Uh, I'm on another pale, uh, pale ale, this time from Bullhouse Brewing, which is based uh, in and around the Belfast area. And this one is called Craft Beer is Too Strong. Um, I chose this one for the show because I thought the name is really good. Uh, the name sort of alludes to one of the recent uh, hearings on the new legislation. Um, 
that was uh, happening maybe about two months ago. And um, this group that I mentioned earlier, Hospitality Ulster, they were saying um, one of the problems with, with uh, allowing uh, breweries here to have tap rooms is that craft beer is too strong and people going to will just get drunk off their heads and then they'll try and head into town and Belfast and they're going to create mayhem. It'll be an absolute nightmare. So this, this is one of their arguments against allowing uh, brewers in Northern Ireland to have some sort of uh, producer's license. And uh, one of the breweries obviously felt this is an absolute nonsense. Uh, they have no uh, understanding of how tap rooms work. And the fact of the matter is that people who go to tap rooms, I mean, you guys have been to so many tap rooms in your life. I've been to quite a few over the years. It's actually a much more um, uh, restrained atmosphere you know, than you'll find in many pubs, I would say. Um, you know, people there more to enjoy the beer than to get hammered, you know. And, you know, they were they were talking about oh, people having pints of 9% stouts. It's like, the fact of the matter is, whenever you go to a tap room, uh, the breweries know what they're serving and they'll serve it in appropriate measures. But, um, you know, I think they were trying to sensationalize this a little bit. Yeah, I mean, well, we can come on to that. I mean, it's, like, you've made all the points we would have said because that is just utter bollocks, isn't it? Um, mm-hmm. And also, again, not being funny, the price point of beers are often for those kind, especially at 9%. I mean, you're mm-hmm. at a pint, you're probably going to balk a little bit of paying it anyway. So even the, the, the price point argument sort of, sort of dense what they're trying to say about the beers anyway um but should we get into them our yeah, respective let's, beers let's, let's let's give them a try and then we can talk a little bit more certainly about our one mate cheers cheers, right. cheers gents well that's a lemony lager Ooh. lemon and limes very much so yeah bready and floral on those real citrus characteristics and then that line comes through really strongly at the end, doesn't it? I mean, yeah. I, I know there's no additions in this, but the, the the ingredient combinations, the hop combinations that they must have used in, in that to get that flavour, um, are pretty quite good, actually. That's, yeah. that's really well balanced. Yeah, I mean, I, to be honest, I'm not sure I would have, apart from the bready element, initially on the nose, hard to pick it out as a lager almost, apart from there was a little bit, it felt like a little bit of extra carbonation mm. when I first poured it in the glass. As Steve said, so this is the, the, the cheetah lager. So this is the cheat for the cheetah conservation fund. And apparently in the last 100 years, uh, 90% of the cheetah population has been lost in the world. And so the cheetah conservation fund are completely dedicated to try and save the cheetah in the wild. So again, another worthy cause with supporting the wildlife. Very much so. Um, continuing in, in, in the theme with what Fauna are, are trying to do. And we obviously will put a, a, a link in the show notes to their website so you can read, read a little bit more about what the brewery's aims are and what, what each of these different beers are aiming to do as well with, with their, their, their different support for different charities with, with each beer. Yeah, definitely. But I mean, what I'm going to say again is that this is, a, again, a very, very good beer. And I think there's been a lot of beers over the years that have had... Uh, very worthy causes behind them. Not all of them hit the mark straight away as a beer. So, you know, if you can get the product right and you can then get your message out there, it's a win-win for everyone and surely that you're going to raise more money as well if they can get enough of it out there. 
Absolutely uh, agree, yeah. Um, and, and like I say, they've, they've launched with the three beers that we're trying tonight. So that's the table beer, the lager and an IPA, which which we'll come on to. But certainly from what, what I've tasted so far, um, if people try their beers, they're, they're going to hopefully succeed in what they're setting out to do, aren't they? Yeah, uh, that's it. I'm, I'm massively impressed because I did have a little, I'll be honest, a little bit of, a, not cynicism, but like I said, sometimes my experience has been the message and the ethos has sometimes been better than the product. Well, while we're drinking this, uh, let's get on to this week's question. Opinions, 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 opinions. Which was, if you were interested in opening a pub, what would be the most likely thing to stop you from doing so? And this question was actually suggested to us by Stephen to, to, to link in with the conversation about the licenses in, in, in Northern Ireland. So some of the options that we suggested under our poll were unsociable hours, which came in at 31.8% of the vote, startup costs, 26.5% of the vote, unpredictable income, 31.5%, and then something else, 10.3%, and 304 votes in total. So let's go through um, some of the feedback that we've, we've had. And then we'll come back to our discussion about our thoughts on this and how that links into the, the, the licensing situation. Well, the licensing situation in Northern Ireland would give 100% startup costs, <laughs> I imagine. <laughs> Wouldn't if we were that, yeah. at, at that yeah. audience. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, yeah, so let's get into some comments here. So from Matt Jeffs at Nimbus, the 18 months I worked in the tap room, I barely spent any quality time with my wife. We lost all weekends together and some weeknights. And that's the lowest rung of the ladder. There was a dog higher up the chain than me. From points of brew, sounds like a daft thing to say, but for me, having discussions now about this very thing is location, especially post-COVID. Do you go city centre, outskirts or an outlying town? Likewise, parking, no parking, all come into play, which either make people come or if it's too much effort, they won't bother. Johnny Beer Boy, at Johnny Beer Boy, 100% startup costs for me. I cannot even conceive of ever having the money to be able to start up a pub. And even with some form of huge loan, I can't ever imagine being able to cope with the repayments. From Rob Zilla at Rob Many Handles. Once seriously considered it, but despite no practical pub or business experience, lacking regular fitness and a near pathological destation of forced socialising, all required skills. It's just too great a financial risk these days, at least considering the possible returns. From Gavin Hutsby at Seguane, 82. Have occasionally played fantasy micropub with one of my good friends and drinking buddy. I even thought of locations that might have been suitable and could have fed into others. But I've never ran a business before and I'm kind of on the supply end now anyway. From James at James Moosh. It's too hard to make decent money from running a pub and too much like hard work for me. Mark Johnson. Definitely the hours. I weigh it up almost every year. And whilst I know all the risks very well, the hours is the one I can't see past. I've seen the impossibility of breaks and holidays too much. Chris Hanks at Chris Hanks 1977. It's something I probably weigh up every few years. Answered unsociable hours, but financial risk and ultimately the sheer amount of hard work required are the things that put me off. From Dr. Goggles, there is real scope for a craft beer gin type place in my village. Most of the nearby villages have one, but mine doesn't. Unfortunately, A, I already have a full-time job, and B, I don't have a clue of how to start or run such a place. From Craig Henderson at the MCR Smoggy, 
It's not just the unsociable hours, but the sheer amount of hours. Pubs are hard work. My parents took over the local pub when I was 18. They took on a second pub four years later and asked me if I wanted to run it for them. I said no, because I'd seen firsthand how much work it was. Gary Barber at Gary Barber. Having no idea how to run a pub would be my main blocker. Uh, from Mike McGuire at McGuire Mike. As beer nerds, I bet we've all romanticised about owning a pub. All of the above scare the pants off me. The one thing that scares me the most, people. Specifically, drunk, aggressive clowns. Hats off to the folk in the industry dealing with that daily. From Mike Hampshire at Mike's Taproom, the landlords of the property, based on when we ran the pub in Bradford and post efforts to take on a new pub, without a friendly, forward-thinking, cooperative relationship with a willing and interesting landlord, you will consistently have a weight around your neck that won't budge. And then finally, from Rich Taylor, none of these reasons are reasons to stop me doing it, as I would know what I'd be in for before opening my own pub. Research and knowledge are a key factor when opening a business, so a pub is no different. Like any new businesses, you get what you put in. Now, there were some really interesting responses to that. And I'm wondering how many people would have changed their view if we had put it in the context of the discussion that we had with Stephen before we asked the question in terms of if the mere license to get a pub was 150K, would you be interested in trying to make a success out of that business? Because that, that was kind of the context that we asked the question in, but obviously people answered it in a very, very different way. Um what what do we think about this? Stephen, maybe your views first, seeing as, 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 as you put the question to us. Sorry, before you answer, Stephen, could I reframe it a little bit? Take the startup costs out of it for you. Because take, take out the... If we remove the licensing law issue of having a finite number and the costs associated with that, what would be your, your answer? Um, to be honest, I think my wife... I'm not sure my wife would allow me to open a pub. That comes under other then, yeah? Yeah, 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 something else. You know, like the unsociable hour, like there, there is a lot of, you know, I've never run a pub, but I've worked in a pub before. And yeah, it's, you know, it's a lot of hard work. Um, even as just somebody, you know, who was, who, who was working there, he didn't have a lot of responsibility. He was like a fairly junior member of staff. But, you know, the, the amount of effort and time that was in uh, for somebody running a pub, it really is, you know, it has to be a labor of love. Uh, you really have to, you know, have, you know, have your heart in it, make sure that it's something you want to do. Um, and so, but yeah, but honestly, yeah, I would say there's no way my wife would let me do it. So I'm, I'm sticking with that as my answer, but, you know, startup costs in Northern Ireland would be the, would be the biggest problem, but uh, yeah, I couldn't get it past my wife, I think. Um, so that's, that's what I have. <laughs> thank Thank you for the honesty. What about you, Steve? I'm, I'm really not sure. I, I I thought initially when I saw those four options, I I thought un, unsociable hours uh, would have been the one that would have jumped out the most at me because it it does feel like if you were to own and run your own business, um, it feels like it's a twenty four seven job that you get rarely any breaks. Mm-hmm. You can't take holidays. You're always on call sort of thing, which I suppose is all part and parcel of running a business. But I think I think the more I think about it, it's it's probably I would I would be leaning towards the startup cost. If, if money was no object, I'd, I'd still be worried about the startup costs, especially post pandemic when we're in a very, very different world. 
and we're seeing that businesses still aren't necessarily succeeding like they used to. Um, I, I I think it's a, it's a massive risk to take right now, in in, in terms of potentially starting a, a new a new pub or bar. I couldn't agree more. I I, I would definitely be flipping between one and two, the the hours and the startup costs. I think you're right. I think some of the best pubs I've been to are ones where the landlord and landlord are there the whole time. They probably live above the premises. They may have the odd afternoon off, maybe a, a Monday when the pub isn't open, perhaps something like that, if that still happens in some places. Um, but you have to live it. I think you have to live and breathe it, especially if you're uh, a local for people. It just, yeah, I've, I've definitely played that fantasy pub game where I've got, in my head, I've got the best bar in the world and it couldn't fail. Um, yeah. <laughs> and I think a lot of, as, as it was said, yeah, I'm sure a lot of beer nerds have played that one. But even just talking to Pete, anyone, anyone I talk to about running their own business makes me think, yeah, I'm not sure I ever want to do that. Throw in the unpredictability, which is even more so, as you alluded to, Steve, post-COVID, um, and a very different a very different world for 18 months, which directly impacted hospitality. Um, I can't see myself ever doing it. I think the only re- way I would do it would be I come into such a large sum of money that I fund someone else to do the unsociable hours. Mm-hmm. Well, that's, that's the approach I take. Just hire a really good GM to, <laughs> yeah. to, to run mm-hmm. it for you. I mean, um, not rich, obviously. No, no, not no. rich. <laughs> no. Um, well, because I, I think my other worry would be that I would end up drinking my profits because I, if, 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 I, if I run a pub, it would only serve the beers that I wanted to drink. And then I'd be behind the bar drinking them, not selling them. So yeah. it'd be like the 70s when ex-footballers used to run their own pubs and stuff and hold the air with them, <laughs> made a, a successful fortune out of it. I think there would be a danger to that. I think you would need a general manager, someone who knows it, someone who can be left to do it. And, you know, joking aside, someone who's got the experience such as Rich has got and other wonderful bar staff that we've met over the years, Steve, more than happy to then have my input in it and to take my unfair share of the profits because I've put all the money into it, but to actually be behind the bar seven days a week or seven nights a week. And someone else said, you know, I, 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 back in the nineties, I dated someone whose mum and dad lived above a pub. And when I did used to help out, you do have to be prepared to talk to everyone and anyone, even Mm. on your worst day because that's what's expected of you when you're on the other side of the bar. You can't really have one of those grumpy days or do you know what? I really don't want to speak to anyone today. You can't really get away with that. So there's so many other bits, but if it was just the, as I am now in the position I'm in now, unsociable hours and startup costs pretty much make it a no, no. Yeah. I'd agree though that, um, you know, even just starting a business in itself is a lot of hard work. Um, But I think starting a business in a pub, it's, I think it's an extra, you know, that's an extra level up, an extra couple of levels up um, because, you know, there's so much responsibility and time that has to go into doing that. And, you know, unless you're a pub that can afford to close a couple of days a week, and I don't know if many pubs can afford to do that, really, um, even in the, you know, in the rest of the UK, um, it's definitely, a, you know, it's really, it's really a hard, you know, really a hard amount, like a lot of work. Um, and, yeah, it's, you know, the amount of return you get out of it 
you know, you just have to really enjoy that um, to make it worthwhile. What I will say is hats off to everyone who does do that so that I can go mm-hmm. and drink in a pub or a bar exactly. or a tap room because they are doing sterling work. Yeah, it's more so over the last 18 months as well when they've been allowed to. As always, we're really grateful for all of the comments on this week's question. There will be a link to that question in the show notes. You can click through on that and you can have a read of through all of them, uh, especially some of the ones that we didn't feature this week. Keep the comments coming. Use the hashtag opinions and you may very well find yourself in this next part of the show. Let us know. Write it down. Let us know. Write it down. Let us know your thoughts and bitter in lingerness. Write it down. From Can I Get a Pee? A good episode. I remember turning up to a tasting with a 93 McEwen's commemorative ale that tasted like water and cardboard. This sounds far better than that. Conversely, I've drunk a 1959 Russian Imperial and a 1983 Hardy, but both weren't a total travesty. Point to brew. I checked in with the ever-entertaining beer o'clock show as they drank some surprisingly pleasant 40-year-old beer. Didn't say what he thought of it, though, did he? No. no, (laughs) Must have enjoyed it. Yeah, from Pete at Hops and Hoops. Great chat as ever. And what a banger of an outro track. From Lou on Brew at Lou on Brew. A great couple of podcasts recently. Really enjoyed listening to Matt talk about his book. And another on some surprising, not terrible, 40-year-old royal wedding beers. Great job. From Guzzler at Lagging Boat. Catching up with the last few podcasts. Great material as ever. I've come across old bottles of beer myself at car boot sales and always been a bit sceptical. But I think I'll dabble next time. And then finally, from Simon Clark at Simon Carbon, this came in via DM, just saying, hey, guys, I re- just wanted to say that I really enjoyed the last opinion show. How are you feeling? Your comments about visiting pubs, bars and festivals during a pandemic align very much with my own, which is very much being cautious and risk assessing the places I visit. There seems to be a big variance between venues, public transport and people's behaviour. And it was great to hear the subject tackled seriously and with sensitivity, as we all have different ideas of what we consider to be a safe place. Also, I wasn't aware of the opinions poll guidelines. So thanks for mentioning that too. Thanks for that, Simon. And um, glad that you appreciated how we managed to come across with that subject. Um, and to Guzzler, um, we take no responsibility if your dusty old beers aren't good. Okay, disclaimer. <laughs> yeah, we've still no idea how ours were kept yeah. before they came into our possession. Well, I would, I would like to say, gents, I, I really enjoyed the last show. How are you feeling? But um, you know, you guys made a lot of really good points there, and I think it is important to point out that uh, on social media, everybody should be treating each other with respect. You can have a difference of opinion. There's no problem in having that, but it's how you put opinion across and the way that you come across is important. But I thoroughly enjoyed the the 40 year old show. I just I thought that was amazing. I really enjoyed it. You had a you had a Northern Ireland legend on there, um, who you know, who knows his beer really well. And just listening to that podcast um, and sort of you know understanding that. Those beers are out there, and if you find them, it, it, you know it's worth a pop at some point. It was a really enjoyable listen to see how they fared over forty years. Uh, a couple of years ago, I did find a beer in an antique shop in Northern Ireland, in Port Rush, actually, where the brewery is, and it's a nineteen twenty nine Prince's Ale from Bass. But I know it's in terrible condition because it was just sitting out there in the shelf in front of a window. I don't know how long it'd been there for. I did buy it and took it home and it, it sort of sits in the cupboard. I don't know if I'll ever drink it. 
Uh, it accidentally uh, fell over at one point and a little bit of uh, liquid dripped out over a couple of days into a box it was sitting in. So the cork isn't fully uh, secure on it, but someday I'll open it up and try it. But I don't, uh, I'm not optimistic on that one. But but um, I really like the idea of, of getting some of the, you know, aged beers and, you know, a, a little bit of a surprise. Uh, you never know what comes out of it. And it seems like you guys were presently, uh, presently surprised, surprised by those. Well, we were definitely we were definitely not as disappointed as we thought we might be. Um, a suggestion for you, Stephen: you might as well just hold on to it for another eight years. It'll be hundred years old. I've been thinking that's the. I was sort of thinking you know, whenever I picked it up, it was ninety years old, and I sort of oh, 90 years. It's only another ten years. You just hold on to it to then. It's not going to change too much, probably. You know, I've got it sitting somewhere slightly better than it was sitting before. Um, so. If it's gone, it's gone. <laughs> Interesting. So it had a cork in it as well, because obviously the experience that Martin and I had was very, very tightly sealed bottle caps. Um, mm. So this was obviously before maybe even the advent of bottle caps, if they were still using corks in beers in, in, in yeah, the 1920s. Yeah, well, potentially it was corked and wax sealed. So, you know, they made a bit of an effort on it. But yeah, the, the wax is all cracking on it, as I said. You can tell that the bottle is down a good few mils from where it would have been originally. So there's maybe some evaporation through the cork and it falling over and a couple of uh, drops coming out over a few days shows that the beer hasn't been airtight. And I don't know when, how long it's been like that, but I'll still try it at some point. But I, you know, I don't think it's going to be an enjoyable experience. Could be a, <laughs> you'll, you'll have to let us know uh, how that goes. And that beer has certainly hung around for a lot longer than my lager, which has, which has gone. Um, I, I found that uh, really drinkable. Um, it did start to get maybe just a little bit sweet as it started to warm and maybe started to lose some of its crispness, which I wouldn't necessarily want on a hotter day. Yeah, and that's where I think about that original comment I made about is it a lager? As in my, I want a lager to stay crisp all the way through, even when it starts to warm up. I still want it to cut off, so to speak. This one has bags of flavour still going on afterwards. Um, and yeah, maybe some of the, like the sort of lemon and lime notes did get a little bit sweeter as it went on. But cold, first poured, if you maybe got that in a, you know, you can keep it a bit cold or cold glass. You're not taking a little bit of time over it. I think you'd have a very pleasant experience still. It, it feels almost more bordering on IPL territory, maybe, than straight up lager. That's that's not a bad shout, actually. It's it's definitely not as, you know, we'd say, we've been lucky enough to taste some really good lagers recently, Steve, as well. Um, and they all had their own characteristics, but they definitely had a bit of a common denominator amongst them as well. This is definitely a fruitier lager than I've had for a while. Yeah, yeah, agree. Stephen, how's the uh, craft beer is too strong? Craft beer is too strong. Has been done. It's been done pretty well. Um, it's it's a little bit lighter than the last beer. It's uh, three point seven. So I'm stepping down this time. I still have same four forty can, and um, it's not as uh, it's. I think it's dry hop with Simcoe, Citra, and Mosaic. Uh, there's definitely much less of a, a citrusy uh, flavor to it than the last beer I had. Um, but it is a little bit, oh, I wouldn't say sour at the end. It's got a little bit of a spritziness to it at the end. Um, it's sort of a little bit palate clean, cleansing in a way. Um, it's, been, it's been pretty good. I'm almost done with it. So it's been uh, enjoyable. Well, in uh, 
<laughs> typical opinion style without making you want to finish a beer, uh, we are going to move on to <laughs> our next beer this week. The final beer for us this week, Martin, is once again from Fauna, and this is their Wild Dog IPA, coming in at a quite low 4.2% for an IPA. I'm surprised it just doesn't say, go the whole, just say session IPA, because it's almost in the perfect place for that, isn't it? Yeah, just sitting just under their lager, above their table beer. Yeah, it's, um, God, bags of bags of aroma coming off of it again though so sorry yeah. i jumped ahead there a little bit no that's fine i mean but also a great again great carbonation and condition yeah they've all bits. been they've all been very well conditioned haven't they there's been some it has been well our experience so far really i mean that was a fairly full can as well the all the cans were fairly much to the level not much feds like not much oxygen getting in at all nice head on them to start Kept I kept a lot of that carbonation. So yeah, no, really good. Mm-hmm. What have you uh, cracked for your last beer then, Stephen? I've opened a beer called Blue Pool. It's from Lakata. Uh, again, this is a Nipa, which you know, I know you guys have a little bit of a you know fraught relationship with the the, the like Nipa style. <laughs> <laughs> um, but this is a this is a beer that we first brewed towards the end of last year, and it's relatively quickly become uh, one of our core beers, uh, like the previous beer, West Bay. Uh, which West Bay has been a core beer for I don't know how many years now. It's one of the original beers that we, that we brewed. Not maybe not original, but certainly it's been around for a few years. This one here has only been around for less than a year, but it was, you know, it's proved pretty popular in the Northern, Northern Irish market. Um, you know, I hope you guys will get to try it someday. I'll, I'll try and get those cans over to you at some point. Um, and, uh, you know, I, th- I think even you guys might like it. It is a, it is a very tasty beer. Uh, it's got, you know, a ton of, galaxy citra mosaic in it um in the you know that's gone into the fermenters um you know with a lot of oat and wheat has a real nice uh real nice uh mouthfeel to it um you know very tasty beer overall i have to say very enjoyable one well i think with that description you've given about your beer you should probably dive into it and me and steve should get into our wild dog ipa so cheers guys cheers cheers gentlemen that's good really dry Mm. lovely bitter finish on that that that's again that's packing a punch just just for 4.2 percent. there's loads of flavor going in that loads of citrus some tropical notes a little bit of stone fruits going on and then it gives gives away to this beautiful dryness which is still and, going yeah and and then there's just there's just a hint of a bitterness uh, uh around the, the the edges i'll tell you what it puts me in mind of um i'm not going to say it's exactly the same but it, it puts me in mind of Probably a slightly dialed down version of Sierra Nevada Pale Ale in in terms of that flavour profile at the finish. I, 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 would, I, I think yeah, it is high praise indeed, and that's coming from someone who had taps at work of it. Um, <laughs> I, I I couldn't I, I couldn't agree more with what you just said, Steve. And it, the the tie into the classic American Pale Ale is definitely there in this beer. Uh, it's, I mean, but it's got all that bitterness of an IPA. Um, and it's got lovely mouthfeel to it. Um, it could easily present itself as a slightly higher ABV beer, and you wouldn't be surprised. I mean, goodness knows what they do is they did do a bigger version of this, you know, upwards of the five, maybe closer to the six percent. You can imagine sort of everything being dialed up a little bit, but that dryness and bitterness would be delicious. As we said before, that these beers are all about uh, conservation. And at the moment, they've got free beers, so they're partnering up with three different uh, conservation funds. This one, 
you know, is about wild dogs. Now, again, this is quite an amazing stat. There are only 6,700 wild dogs left in the world. And so the uh, Painted Dog Conservation Fund are making it their mission to create an environment where wild dogs can thrive. So, again, that seems like a really small number, uh, you know, talking about finite numbers all through the show tonight almost. So, again, you know, mm-hmm. well done on having uh, this purpose, this ethos, and well done for producing so far three out of three beers that are actually worthy of the grand ideas and purpose that they've built up for themselves. I, I, I honestly couldn't agree more. Um, I, I've enjoyed every single one of those, and we've only just started the the, the IPA. Um, Stephen, how's that New England IPA doing for you? Um, yeah, it's um, it's going down really well. It's got a great uh, soft body to it. The mouth feels good. And it's still got a little bit of bitterness towards the end. You know, just in case you guys do get to try it, you might get some. You might you might still enjoy that aspect of it. Um, you know, a lot of tropical notes in the flavor. Um, bit of stone fruit as well. Uh, not so much, not so zesty as the last two. Um, but yeah, really enjoying it. Right, so you say that one is from Lacada Brewing, which is which is the yes. brewery that you're involved with, which is obviously one of the breweries that are managing to, to, to make a go and make a success of producing and selling beer in, in, in yeah. Northern Ireland. Um, so to just uh, share with us, obviously, in addition to Lacada, what are the other breweries that are kind of really beginning to make some impact uh, over there in terms of producing some really good beer? Well, so there's probably about 30 breweries now in Northern Ireland and maybe another nine like, small ones doing contract brewing here and there. Um, but, you know, you know, probably the most famous ones in Northern Ireland would be Lakata itself, uh, Boundary Brewing, uh, which is based in Belfast. Um, they're, they're also a cooperative, actually. It seems to be that cooperative brewing in Northern Ireland seems to be you know, relatively popular. Um, the next one up, uh, another one is the one we had earlier, or the one I had earlier, uh, Bullhouse Brewing. They're based in around Belfast again. Um, and one of the up and coming ones, which, you know, um, started a few years ago, uh, was uh, Beer Hut, which are based down in County Down. So the next time you head over there, Martin, if you're heading down to Hill Head, keep an eye out for Beer Hut. They've done a, they've done a, a lot of um, really good beers. And I'm definitely, you know, unfortunately, I'm definitely, I'm going to miss out some important ones, but um, you have Heaney Farmhouse Brewing, which is based uh, in a little place called Blahi, but they were brewing initially in Boundary Brewing in Belfast, and they've sort of set up their own one. Um, Knockout Brewing in Belfast as well. Morn Mountains, again, if you're at Martin, whenever you're back down in County Down, the Morn Mountains are a big thing there. Um, you know, so there is, as I said, there's about 30 in Northern Ireland altogether. But, you know, here's here's a nice headline figure for you gentlemen as well about uh, brewing in Ireland. The oldest independent brewery that exists in Ireland was founded only in 1981. So there is nothing older in, not in Northern Ireland, actually, that's in the whole of Ireland. The oldest independent brewery in Ireland was founded in 1981. And so... You know, it, it sort of points to this fact that, you know, the market in Ireland just has been difficult for anybody to to get into, to, to sort of get their own beers out there. You know, if you go back to the 1800s, there was, I think there was more than 200 brewers on the island of Ireland. And, you know, by the time you get into the 20th century, that number's down to 50. By the time you get to the mid 20th century in uh, Ireland, and this might just be a number for the South because there may have been zero in the North. I think there was only eight breweries in the whole of Ireland. And I would imagine Guinness owned 
you know, they may have owned more than one of those. And I suspect the rest were not owned uh, by any sort of independent families, or if they were, they soon disappeared. So the oldest brewery that exists in the island of Ireland is called Hilden, and they're based outside of Belfast in a place called Lisburn, and they've been going since 1981. And so that sort of tells you a little bit of the story of, you know, the history of brewing in Ireland may be long and storied in some ways, but it's also quite short in other ways um, that, you know, there, there was complete, I don't know, the, the industry was probably hollowed out in some way and was just taken over by big international interests. And, you know, it took a long time for some breweries to sort of really get themselves uh, going again and start to, to brew on an independent level, try and get themselves, you know, get, get themselves into local pubs and things like that. You know, so it's a, it's probably a very young craft beer market in many ways, um, despite the, the history and the reputation that Ireland has for, for enjoying their beer, um, drinking escapades, you know? So, I mean, okay. So let's talk about Lucado where you are, because you've probably got a bit more direct experience, but given everything you've said, it must be a real challenge for anyone who's doing sales um, to get those beers into either the off or on trade. Um, but presumably you do, but, you know, give us an example. I mean, is, is it, I mean, it must be a real challenge to get it. I mean, because supermarkets often won't, over here, co-ops do the do local beers a lot of the time, is yeah. tends to be the one. Um but it will ju- it will be off licenses per se, and then l- maybe the odd pub over here and there. Yeah. What's, what are the challenges? Well, yeah, you're definitely right. The ch- challenges are getting into anywhere um, that may have more than one outlet. You know, um, you know, any of the bigger outlets or any supermarkets, it's very hard for one of the, the the small local independent breweries to get into. There are a couple that get into Tesco and Sainsbury's over here. Um, Hilden, the, the oldest one in Northern Ireland, does manage to get their beers into both those uh, supermarkets. Uh, Whitewater is another, it's one of the older breweries in Northern Ireland. And they're, they're quite big now. I mean, they've got quite an impressive uh, facility down in Castlewell. Again, County, County Down, Martin, next time you're down there. But they're also, they've had some investment by tenants. So they're still more, you know, more than 50% independently owned. I don't know the exact numbers, but, uh, you know, they've had a little bit of a, a boost from the big boys, uh, but you'll get their uh, beers in the supermarkets. But from Lakada's point of view, whenever they first started up, like they, you know, they spent a lot of time just creating uh, relationships with um, off licenses that they knew were not sort of tied in with any big, you know, suppliers or any big, you know, or they were chains of off licenses. The chains of off licenses over here, they're, looking for the big bulk buys rather than, you know, trying to get small local independent um, craft beers in. But fortunately, I guess one, maybe one of the advantages we have is there's maybe a lot of little independent off licenses in Northern Ireland. And so the majority of our sales, especially recently, you know, do come through the off licenses, Um, you know, getting, getting a beer on tap somewhere is pretty difficult. We have a couple here and there. Um, but not too many, but then we're also responsible for getting that line in there and looking after, in a way, almost looking after that line. If there's any problems with the tap or the line or the beers too foamy, you know, we're responsible for trying to deal with that and, and get somebody out to look at that. So, you know, I think, you know, one of, one of the side effects of the fact that Guinness and C&C do manage essentially the infrastructure of a pub, but they, you know, Guinness have a great team 
a massive team that goes around the country. And I think they, they clean the lines for pubs to make sure all the infrastructure is working well. They make sure their, their beer fobs are working well, make sure the taps are set up right, you know, and clean the lines. Um, they will, um, you know, I think what they do is they end up making sellermanship a little bit of a, a skill that's not necessary for the pub owner. The pub owner concentrates more on running the pub and his relationship with his customers and doesn't necessarily have to know how to manage the actual dispensing of the beer. You know, that's taken care of them by, you know, whichever company they've gone with. And so if we do want to put in a beer line um, in a pub, that can be, we would have to try and we either we have to take responsibility for that or you have to teach them how to manage your lines. And, you know, it's maybe questionable as to whether, uh, whether a pub owner would like to, take on that extra responsibility themselves, you know. That's an additional challenge to everything else I'd, I'd, I'd already added in there. So, on top, again, on top of, yeah. <laughs> so, what, what, you know, what, what, you know, what are Lacarda trying to do? What would you say, I mean, you're a fairly young brewery, um, mm-hmm. which I guess is the same for a lot of the breweries in Northern Ireland, given what you just said. But what is it you are trying to do? Are you trying to sort of have some of those styles which people will recognise pretty instantly when they do come across them and then try and introduce, you know, like the Nipa style, are you trying to slowly convert one, one by one people over to some different choices? You know, we, we make a pretty varied range of beers. You know, we, we run the gamut from like, you know, the, the, your small table beers all the way to empty stouts. Um, you know, we've tried everything in between, you know, Steve's favorite sours and, and obviously we've got, <laughs> we've got our Nipas now. You know, the fortunate thing that we have going for us is that we have a pretty good head brewer. You know, you know, whenever the brewery started off back in 2015, approximately, the guy who started it all, uh, he was a home brewer already. And he got a few people together and got a load of money, uh, you know, committed from these people to get the initial um, equipment they needed to brew beer on a relatively decent scale and you know he's done a great job over the years of producing some uh, some fantastic beers and you know we can only we we only trade on our reputation of our beers you know um, you know it's hard for us to do much more than that because we can't get ourselves onto lots of um, onto lots of bar fronts there's a few a few enlightened pubs in Belfast there's a few great pubs in Belfast that we've had our beer on in the past and we'll have our beer on in the future um, you know, once COVID is, you know, well and truly, well, hopefully behind us or, or we've all learned how to cope with the property. Um, but, you know, it, it is literally just, do we make good beers and do people want to buy them? We don't, we, we, we don't have a big marketing budget. We can't push our beers down people's throats um, just to make sure they try them. It's, you know, a lot of word of mouth because we're a co-op, we have 400 co-owners. So whenever you do put a beer out there, we like to think, a good amount of those co-owners are interested in trying it if they find something good you know they recommend to friends you know I, I certainly you know whenever we put out a good beer and you know that's nearly always the case I, I make sure my friends know and then and they'll go and buy a few of them and then you know the, you know um probably with us it really is word of mouth and I think a lot of breweries in Northern Ireland have to sort of work on that on that respect you know you have to make good beers or else you're not going to last long here because you can't get in the pubs and you can't get, you know, if you're, if your beers on a bar, everybody knows how important it is to have a beer on the bar. If your beers are stuck in the bottom of the fridge in a bottle or these days, sometimes in a can, as it might be, you know, a lot of people aren't going to see those beers and know to ask for them. 
you know? And so we can't necessarily get ourselves on to the bar. So we have to make sure that the beers that do come out are, are beers that people will want to go and seek out, you know? So they have to be good. And, and I think you're obviously beginning to have that impact because certainly one of the Licada beers and there are a couple of other beers that actually made it into the pages of, of, of Matt's book as well, weren't there? That, you, you know, so they're obviously having that sort of impact that they've, that they've reached as far as earning that title of being part of that modern British beer scene. Well, yeah, I mean, we were quite lucky that, uh, that Matt uh, wanted to have one of our beers in there. I don't know if we're allowed to talk about them yet, Steve, are we? So uh, we'll just yeah, say yeah, the, we, books, we were... <laughs> the book's out now where the, the, the embargo is lifted. We're allowed to talk about what's in it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I, I knew that Matt had been in contact with our head brewer, Laurie, uh, about one of the beers that he created a few years ago, um, Devil's Washtub, which is a what we call a Cascadian dark ale. So it's probably not quite a bippa, but it's in that direction of, uh, you know, being a, a, you know, a, a beer with quite a few darker malts in the grain bill um, and hopped a bit more than your average sort of, you know, your stout or your, your porter might be. And um, yeah, it, it was very well received whenever it was first released. And um, there was quite a nice story, I think it's included in the book um, about, you know, about how we sort of realized that, yeah, this is a, this is a beer that people do want, you know. Um, and yeah, we we were very happy to be included in that book, along with a couple of other breweries mentioned earlier. I think uh, Boundary was one of the other breweries that was in there, along with um, Heaney Farmhouse. Um, so yeah, no, that was a, that was a bit of an honour for us. Where I haven't got my hands in the book yet, but uh, you know, I'll see if I can get a copy at some point somehow. Well, that's that, that's great to see, and it's a perfect segue <laughs> as, as as well into us uh, doing the draw for um, the competition that Matt set uh, a, a couple of episodes back, which was to um, win a signed copy of of, of the book. Um, I, think he, I think he said he would sign it either in person if you could get hold of him at the time, or um, send one signed. I yes, think was the, uh, yeah. But it's definitely there's definitely a book. There is, there is definitely at least um, a book heading to somebody. Yes. So um, in in the past, we we would have had names in a hat and, and drawn them out because we would have actually mm-hmm. been sat together uh, at this point. But um, we can't do that on on this occasion. So thanks to everybody who entered the competition. The right answer that got you into this draw was Odell IPA, um, and I'm really really sorry to the masses of people that thought it was Jaipur um, because it, it wasn't. I know Matt spoke very, very fondly about Jaipur and the importance of that beer to the book and his journey, but the beer that really started it for Matt was Odell IPA. So, so we, we could only take answers on that. So I've got a load of names on a sheet. They have all been randomly allocated a number between one and 38. And Martin, you just need to give me the first number that comes to mind in between that range. 27. Which is Christian Herzig. Um, so congratulations, Christian. If you are listening to this show, uh, DM us your details. We will put you in touch with Matt and we'll let you guys uh, arrange it between you as to if you want it signed, what you want it to say and where you need it sent. Or if you're going to go up to Manchester and meet Matt for a pint and, and, and receive your book in person. So congratulations, Christian Herzig. Um, as I say, just drop us a DM and, and we'll make sure that you get your book. Yeah, congratulations, mate. 
Just before we do final thoughts on our last beers this week, Stephen, I believe you've got one more terrifying stat for us about the Northern Irish beer scene. Yeah, this is something that might change with the new legislation. It seems like this would change, but up until recently, um, there was a there was a, a law on the books that meant that no beer could be served in North. Not no beer. The limit there was very limited opening hours in Northern Ireland over the Easter holidays and probably Christmas. And so what you would find is that if anybody had booked a stag party to come to Belfast for the Easter weekend, they'd arrive in Belfast on you know Friday afternoon, getting ready for the weekend out. They hit the pub at about three or four o'clock, and then they'd be chucked out of the pub at five o'clock because the pub wasn't allowed to serve any alcohol after five o'clock. And then the hours were restricted over the whole weekend. And so that meant your weekends, you know, hopefully a, a good fun weekend with, uh, with your mates in Belfast would have been absolutely ruined by that. So that's bonkers because if you try, if you even thought about trying to tie the end to religious, generally your good Friday service starts at three o'clock anyway. So, well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I could understand if they had a, will close between two and five because that's a traditional time of a service. Uh, we might mm. finish a bit early on the on the Saturday so you can go to the Easter Vigil, but the limited hours. So what sort of time? So were the hours very similar across the whole of the weekend then? I, I guess so. I think so. I'm not 100% certain. I never really experienced myself since I wasn't living here for most of that time. And you never um, visited but- your family at Easter because of it? Yeah, yeah, I just avoided it. It's just like a dead zone, <laughs> dead time to go, gentlemen, you know. So, um, but yeah, so hopefully with the new legislation, they will fix that anomaly because, you know, it's it shouldn't be the position of a religion to dictate or whatever, whichever religion it is to dictate when, you know, when other people should be allowed to drink. So hopefully we'll we'll get over that little speed bump in the road. That's maybe one of the easier things to the licensing can fix. Well, that's been some fascinating insight into uh, the drinking scene culture in Northern Ireland. Uh, I've, I've really enjoyed listening to, to, to that, Stephen, and, and, and you sharing that with, that with us. So thank you so very much. Oh, you're welcome. In, in terms of just some final thoughts on, on, on our last beers here, um, Stephen, how's yours going? It's going really well. I'm really enjoying it. I, I, I'm probably a little bit behind you guys because, you know, I've been, you know, trying to push a little harder to keep up with you because I've got the bigger cans. But um, yeah, uh, really delicious beer, Blue Pool. Um, uh, I really enjoy it. As I said, this is one of the beers that, you know, one of our one of our directors, fellow directors of the board recently said he reckons this is the beer that that is really pushing the brewery forward. So um um, you know, it's it's been really enjoyable. What we'll make sure we do is we'll put some information in the show notes uh about Lacada and um Anything else that you think is relevant that you want to share with us, we'll, we'll, we'll stick that in the show notes so, so people sure. can click through to it. Martin, final thoughts on the Wild Dog IPA from Fauna? Excellent. That dry bitter finish lasts all the way through the 330 can. Um, even when it did start to warm up a little bit, it didn't lose any of its punchiness. Um, I would definitely have that again. It, that you know, The order we went in the beers worked out really well that table beer to the lager to, to the beer we just had now. But yeah, all three of them really good. And like I said, I love the ethos, I love the purpose, but also the, the quality of the beer inside. The three we've tried were excellent. 
I can't add anything to, to, to what you've said there. Um, yeah, really delicious beers, all three. And uh, we are very grateful to Fauna for sending those beers over. We are equally grateful to Alex at Right Hand PR, who actually made the introduction to Fauna for us. Um, uh, a, a new brewery onto the scene that the that the Alex is representing there and it was great that she got in touch and asked us if we'd like to try a few, a few and again there'll be a link in the show notes where you can find out more about the brewery and try those beers Martin what is coming up on the next show well somehow we've managed to reach our fifth birthday Steve Woo! So fifth, yeah thank you very much so the fifth birthday of opinions we've already recent any excuse for celebration we tend to celebrate Beer O'Clock Show anniversary, we celebrate Opinions anniversary, we celebrate the end of year show. So we always try to do a celebration and I'm pretty much guarantee that none of the beers will be anywhere near the ABV we tried tonight. <laughs> you know what else you can guarantee, mate, about that show? Because it's a celebration show. What does that mean? I don't know. You're going to come up with something really daft. You've got a spreadsheet and we're going to drink about 440 cans, which are about 11%. No, mate. It's it's the thing that you love the most, which is when I drop a random quiz on you I, uh, oh. about stats. <laughs> so there's 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 a two week warning to do a, to do a little bit of thinking. For goodness sake, you and your stats and your spreadsheets. You next year will be tweeting me saying, "Oh, I've got an idea." <laughs> But yeah, that's that's going to be a great show. I am really looking forward to that show. And we will also be revealing on our fifth birthday show all of the details about the beer that we went up to Brew York to brew with Elusive Brew as well. So that is going to be a show that you are not going to want to miss because you're going to get to hear all of those details first on the podcast. So really looking forward to that. Stephen, one more time, thank you for joining us tonight. Um, Thank you for sharing some insight about Northern Ireland. We've really enjoyed it. I've really enjoyed having a beer. All that's left to say is cheers. Cheers. Cheers, gentlemen.